Welcome back to the official Sasta podcast brought to you by the main man, Jason Lemkin, founder at Sasta on Jason LK on Twitter, and me, Harry Stebbings of the 20 Minute VC at H Stebbings on Snapchat. Now, for the show today, very few guests you instantly hit it off with, but that was not the case with today's guest, and I'm not sure if that was the mutual name, Harry, or something else, but today's show was one of the most fun I think I've ever recorded in 250 shows. Therefore, I'm delighted to welcome Harry. Harry Glazer, co-founder and CEO at Periscope Data, the world's fastest analysis suite, providing data analysts with the tools they need to improve their analysis by over 150x. And an astonishing fact here, they've doubled their revenue every three months ever since launch. Absolutely incredible. And Harry is just as incredible, despite his modesty. And Periscope has some incredible investors in the form of Ellen Powell, Matt Ocko at Data Collective, Chad Byers at Sousa Ventures, Wesley Chan at Felicis, Benjamin Ling at Kostler, and many, many more incredible names. Also, in the show today, we mentioned Jason Lemkin and Aaron Ross's new book, From Impossible to Inevitable, How Hypergrowth Companies Create Predictable Revenue. And if you haven't read that, that's an absolute must and can be found in the show notes with the link. But enough from me. So without further ado, I'm delighted to welcome my first ever Harry in 250 shows in the form of Harry Glazer, co-founder and CEO at Periscope Data. Good. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're warmed up. Harry, such a pleasure to have you on the show. Brilliant to have another Harry. Uh, the first <laughs> I've ever had in 250 episodes. Can you believe it? But welcome to the official Sasta podcast. Well, it's great to be here. Thank you very much. Now, I want to start off today by hearing how you made your way into the world of SaaS and, and the founding story behind Periscope Data. Well, I think we, we got into Periscope Data and into SaaS both by accident. Uh, my, uh, my master plan was just to work with my co-founder, Tom. Uh, Tom is one of those just 10 out of 10 incredible engineers and human beings. And my master plan, my life plan, my career plan was to get Tom to work with me on anything at all. And so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm like bothering him, move to San Francisco, let's start a company, let's start, I'll start any company you want, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, he finally did it. This was my very first recruiting job, getting him to do this. He, he leaves his girlfriend, his friends, his life in Seattle and drives down to San Francisco. And we started working on this really all kinds of stuff, but eventually this consumer mobile application that had a few tens of thousands of users. And Periscope Data got its start as a side project that we wrote for ourselves to look at data internally because we were kind of frustrated that there wasn't anything kind of fast and flexible enough on the market. We didn't think too much about it. We just built it over a weekend and used it. Um, and then we had that very humbling startup experience where our side project gets more attention than our main project. And eventually our side project got more revenue than our main project, which was really a clue. Um, so that's how it kind of got its start. And then, you know, when people wanted to pay us for it, we thought, well, a subscription is more convenient than like metered billing or something. So let's just let's just charge them a flat subscription fee. And I later learned that that's called SaaS. And so here we are. And, and so there wasn't much thought into the pricing model at the beginning, I'm, I'm guessing. And how did, did that evolve over time then? <laughs> yeah. So our very first pricing, we tried to think of the very largest number that we could. Uh, which without, turned without out being offensive. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Like, and so that turned out to be twenty thousand dollars a year, which is like the, the the highest we could think at that point at that point in time. And uh, that that they said yes, so we probably should have charged more, and we learned that lesson later. So yeah, and then and then we thought, oh crap, we need we need customers to be able to upgrade. We really want upsell, and so we stopped quoting one price, and we so we made some reason up why people would want to upgrade. 
Um, and that was kind of how we got started. Blatant honesty is always the best way. Transparent, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Transparency is key in startups. Uh, so I wanted to. Spend... Yeah, I'd love to say we had a master plan, but we we really didn't. No, there was a lot of thought behind that. You just went yeah. No, on. we're we're careful strategic planners here at Periscope Data. <laughs> and I want to split the show today into a few different segments. So we're going to start off with the sales process with that very um, thought out uh, pricing model that you did so much on. Uh, then we're going to move to the scaling of high velocity inbound. Then we're going to have a quick fire. And then we're going to finish with a relaxed conversation on the increasing role of data analysts, as you do. Sounds great. So starting with the sales process then, what are your learnings from hiring and building out the initial team from that moment of of you and your co-founder? Yeah, so uh, originally we were all building products, and then eventually we needed customers. And so I would market the product, and then I would sell the product. And what worked for us was we wrote this blog post, a very technical blog post on uh, optimizing subqueries in Postgres databases. And we wrote this post and we published it and it went viral and it got 1,500 sales leads in like 24 hours. And so then my whole life was calling these folks back. And it was inbound sales was crazy. It was such a revelation because I had spent the previous several months like getting intros to everyone and we'd go there and we'd pitch them on Periscope and they'd go, okay, but why are you here? You know, like what, what is, why would we need this? And then to get on the phone with people who open with, I want to buy your product was just incredible for me. Uh, and so that was kind of how we got started and I marketed and sold until I couldn't do it any, all anymore. And then I went, okay, we're going to hire a marketer and we hired our marketer, John, he's wonderful. Uh, and John marketed and I sold and that worked until it was time to kind of hand it off. And so at every stage of the evolution, we just kind of went, what, what am I doing now? And can we hire someone to do that? That process, I think, worked pretty well. Mm-hmm. And how did you attempt to then establish a much more formal structure once you had you and your co-founder and John at the helm and trying to delegate roles? Well, what, what happened, and I, I think this gets into something we'll talk about later on, is we had sort of non-technical, t- typical SaaS salespeople, wonderful SaaS salespeople, but not with a particular technical background, selling a very technical product. And so the way we kind of got around that was to say, we're just going to formalize a lot of this process relatively early on. We're going to have a a big sales FAQ. Um, We're going to have a pretty built-out process where you have your demo, then you have your trial, then you have your close. We're going to put the CRM in. Um, And by having all of those things, the salesperson would know where they are in the process, what happens next? And they kind of put a safety net around the whole process. And I'm really intrigued there because you had such success uh, <laughs> through the kind of um, viral content marketing that you did almost accidentally. I guess you didn't expect yes, such yeah, success yeah. Uh, at the beginning. So does content marketing then form a kind of pivotal role now in your sales process? Or, or have you kind of uh, pushed that as far as it can? Do you know what I mean? Uh, to yeah, what extent yeah, yeah. is it still crucial to you? It is crucial. It's a little bit less, it's less volume than some of our other channels now, but I think it's still the highest quality leads. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, it, and it's also, it was really nice about content is it pays off forever. So if I write a piece of content and it's successful, I might get 10 leads this week, 10 leads next week, 10 leads, leads the week after for free after I've written that content piece. Whereas, you know, for SEM, for example, I have to keep paying to keep getting leads next, the next day and the next day and the next day. And so content is really highly leveraged that way. When you look at the different channels, what have been the most effective? And has that been as you expected? I'm intrigued to hear kind of the surprise turnouts for you, like the content marketing was at the beginning. I would say content works very well. And I would say uh, paid SEM also works very well for us, which might be a surprise to some folks. But what's really nice about it is you can turn it on a dime. So you can scale it up 
scale it down, optimize, and see results right away versus something like content, which is a bit of a longer-term play. And on the institutional sales side there, you did mention the, the non-technical selling, the very technical product. So so with that institutional sales training, how did you build it out kind of fr- from ground zero up to, to the for- funnel that you have now with the team that you have? Yeah, so when we started, we said, okay, like I said, I was sort of replacing stuff that I was doing. So I'm selling all day long. And for me, coming from a technical background, what was hard about it was the sales piece. You know, I knew the technical stuff. I was, it was like a lot of founders, I think, uh, very easy for me to answer questions on the phone, but structuring a sales process and getting them to actually pay at the end of the day, that was hard. And so we were much more interested in finding people who were exceptional salespeople. We felt confident that we could teach the technical piece. And what ended up happening was, I was on the sales calls, you know, every step of the way with our initial reps. Anytime there was a technical question, I would pick up a headset. Anytime there was a closing call and we thought that there was going to be, you know, some, some technical pushback, I would proactively be on that call. And then we went, okay, we need to, just like previously, we need to replace this role. And by that time, we had the world's greatest customer support team sort of in-house. And so we went, these people, they're so good at answering every possible customer question and helping the customer with every step of the way. It just sort of felt natural to have them step onto sales calls as well and help, you know, sit with the sales engineering and the sales process. And so I think that worked pretty well for us as well. And when did you hire your first VP of sales then? And as it was your first startup, how did you go about knowing what was the right one and, and what would fit in with your company that you were building? Well, something I learned, I think, from Saster was every senior level hire, every sort of executive hire should teach you something somewhere in the sales process. Um, somewhere, excuse me, in the, in the recruiting process. Uh, and so, was, you know, we just started by interviewing a lot of different folks. And I think we hired one after five or six reps, I think between two and three million ARR. Uh, we wanted someone who was, had gone the distance, was really familiar with our kind of high velocity inbound model and could speak authoritatively about exactly how to scale it up. And that worked pretty well for us. And it ended up being a board level referral that got the job. Although, uh, managed search can work pretty well too. And, and talking of kind of scaling up that very high velocity inbound model, uh, which you most certainly had, with, yeah. with, I, I think I'm right here in saying $5 million ARR on a pure inbound model, correct? Yeah, well, I think by the time we started going outbound, we were at $5 million. So, so, so then what are the inherent pros of having such an inbound heavy model? Uh, and what does this allow you to do? Yeah, so I like to talk about it. It's like um, It's like driving a race car. At the beginning of any given month, a third of the revenue that we're going to close at the end of the month isn't in Salesforce at all in the beginning of the month. They haven't shown up at the website yet. It, because it's so fast, you can really turn it on a dime. You can decide, okay, we're going to burn a little more cash and get a few more leads and really blow it out this month. Or you can say, ooh, we're worried about the burn rate. We're going to take it down a step and bring in a few fewer leads. And you can make that determination instantly and kind of in a zero-stress way because you're not talking about hiring more people or hiring fewer people or anything like that. Um, you can also optimize really quickly. You can say, oh, crap, it turns out that the leads uh, from this particular geography aren't closing quite as well. We don't want them anymore. Let's turn those off and reapply spend somewhere else in the funnel. And that can all happen very quickly, um, which is super nice in, in terms of making course corrections without you know, taking a lot of risk. I'm intrigued. Where did you see the inefficiencies of geography where conversion wasn't as high as other locations? Well, the first thing we noticed was people who don't speak English, uh, which might have seemed obvious in retrospect, but <laughs> we started, we started bringing in leads from all over the globe because, you know, the, the, we have a machine learning model that qualifies leads. You know, it would go, 
oh, this is a really terrific uh, Russian company, let's say. It's right in the sweet spot, and they have a whole team of data analysts. It's going to be great. And they get on the phone, and they don't speak a word of English. And you go, well, this is a challenge. At that, at that point, we went, okay, only English-speaking countries. And then the other challenge is time zone, where if they are off in Singapore, even though they speak English, it can be a challenge to close them um, just in terms of everybody getting on the call at the same time and kind of moving forward together. Um, so those were the big challenges geography-wise. And, and you mentioned that machine learning qualifying leads. So I'm, I'm mm-hmm. really intrigued. How do you think we'll see, with the rise of machine learning uh, and much faster processes, how do you think we'll see the intrusion of machine learning into kind of traditional enterprise software? It's quite a buzz topic in the SaaS world. You know, from the bottoms up, you can think about machine learning. It does a few things. It filters, it ranks And so anything in a business process where you have a large group of things and you need a smaller group of things, I think you're going to eventually replace that with some kind of algorithm or some kind of machine learning situation. Um, And so for us, you know, we had not that much cash, not that many people and way too many leads. And so we just went, well, I bet we can write a quick filter. You know, we were lucky enough to have a couple of machine folks with machine learning backgrounds here at Periscope Data. We can write a quick filter and score the leads real quick. And at that point, we had no idea about infer or anything else on it. Maybe if Jason Lemkin had blogged about them, we would know about them. We had no idea about any of that stuff. And so we just went, oh, we'll, we'll write a quick filter, and that worked pretty well. And I think any, any business process where you need to take a large mass of stuff and kind of qualify it down, um, you can probably apply machine learning over time. Um, and we spoke about the pros of having the flexibility to kind of apply cash to certain aspects that are working and, and take it away from others that aren't. What, mm-hmm. what are the cons then? I mean, yeah. what are the problems associated with such a heavy inbound? Two, two main cons, one which I would say is a problem and one is just maybe a missed opportunity. Um, the problem is it's it, just like driving a race car. If you turn it a little too tight, you can drive it into the wall. And so you go, you know, to take this example of non-English speaking customers, which would be wonderful, except that we don't have any non-English speakers in the office. You know, you can, you can get hooked on what seems like a really great cheap lead source and discover at the end of the month that, oh, crap, I was counting on that additional set of people coming in in the middle of the month and all the ones we got were bad and they didn't convert. And then you miss your month by a lot. Just like you can tune it up a little bit and really get a lot of lift really quickly, you can tune it down by accident and really miss by a lot. And so you just have to um, really put a lot of vigilant process in place. And so we do a daily marketing stand-up where we look at the quality of the leads that came in that day, um, the amount that we paid for the leads that day, uh, the CPAs that we're getting that day. And then we follow each cohort through the funnel over the next several weeks to make sure that we're getting the payback. And that's because of lessons learned the hard way where you learn a, mo- a month later that all those leads that you got were terrible. Mm-hmm. So that's something to watch out for. And no, I'm intrigued though, going back to, to the sales team then. And, and uh, you, d- you decided to integrate the roles of sales engineering with customer, customer support, uh, mm-hmm. with offering instant chat support to everyone, uh, I, I think I'm right in saying. So, so, yeah, absolutely. so why did you choose to do this? And, and what's optimum about this integration? The, the solutions team, as we call them, like they're the product experts at the company and they are insanely customer helpful. They're just the most cheerful, optimistic group of people. They, it sort of dawned on us that they were the ideal folks to be talking to customers, really anyone, prospects, customers, anytime they might have a question about the product or want to know something a little more technical. Uh, we had this group of experts right here with this incredible customer-focused culture. And so we wanted to take that customer-focused culture and move it as early in the sales process as possible. And so that's why that worked out for us. And my love of customer success is, is very public, as we were speaking beforehand about my love of it. Uh, so, yeah, yeah. so I'm intrigued to hear how much of a role does customer success play for you uh, with Periscope Data? I definitely think that the ability to talk to a sort of SQL literate data analyst who's very cheerful and very optimistic and very knowledgeable 
you know, with a five second response time on chat, whether or not you're paying, whether or not you have a high tier plan or a low tier plan is one of the key selling points for the product. And so that works really well for us. I will say you called it customer success and we don't have these folks do upsells or any sales motions at all on purpose so that they can be perfectly aligned with the customer. They're only here to solve the problem. They're not here to try to upsell you or anything like that. Uh, the sales team will take care of that. Okay, absolutely. And you talked about higher, higher models and lower models there. How do you look to bridge the gap? Often it's quite a difficult thing selling to both ranges in terms of, you know, having a lower price model can disillusion the higher price model thinking that it's no longer kind of such a quality product that they're paying for. So how do you look to bridge that and balance the two? Yeah, we, we charge by data volume and this is, this is an ongoing challenge for us, and I don't know that we've necessarily solved it completely. But we do charge by data volume, and we do find that that kind of selects for you know larger companies with large data teams will have logged a lot of information and be integrating multiple systems, and they'll have a lot of data. And so we can go ahead and say, yeah, you're using this you know this power tool in a very uh, in a very high level, very highly leveraged way, and that's maybe worth more than the team that's just using it on a small database to build out a couple of dashboards. And I think that works pretty well for us. I think we do leave some value on the table in terms of large contracts and really having them pay as much as they're, you know, as, as they're finding value. That's an ongoing opportunity for us. So, so then I want to dive into a quick fire round with you now. So it's called the 60 seconds Aster and it's a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. Sure. So productivity hacks and tactics. What do you use? (laughs) The big one is exercise every day. I go to the gym every morning without fail. It's it's one of these inviolable blocks on the calendar. um, And I highly recommend it. And then I would say, and this this might be just nuts and bolts for the kind of high level folks you have on this podcast, but totally rigorous calendar, totally rigorous email and to-do list, inbox zero, all that good stuff. Talk to me there. I'm too intrigued. What do you use for your calendar? What do you use for your to-do list? You can tell I need some help here. (laughs) I use Google Calendar and I use a text file. So I don't know that I have a lot to a lot to add here. Well, that's not very advanced. Uh, damn, I was <laughs> I was looking for some solution that would solve my problems. I tried a- um, I tried Amy dot AI, which is brilliant, but I need further. Our first customer was a to do list app called Astrid uh, that was eventually acquired by Yahoo. I don't know if the if the app is still up, but because they were our first paying customer, I, I have to I feel like I have to give them a plug. Well, absolutely, I'm sure. Well, I, I'll check them out after the show. Uh, <laughs> Sounds good. Let me know if they're still up. And then talk to me about greenfield opportunities in SaaS. Where, where do you think we'll see kind of real innovation in SaaS? Oh, man, what isn't a greenfield opportunity in SaaS? I think one thing that we see that maybe other folks don't see is there's a lot of back-end data munging and processing and kind of like unsexy, unsexy data things going on that really are being done by you know a collection of hacky Python scripts right now. Um, copying data from place to place, transforming data, storing data. Uh, all that stuff is, you know, is being done by people, people writing scripts on the side. And so I think there's a big opportunity there. I also seem to spend a lot of time on accounting. So maybe, maybe there's already SaaS stuff out there for that. But if not, that sure seems like an opportunity. That is indeed. You should try zero X E R O. Brilliant. I will, I will try that. Thank you. Uh, and then favorite SaaS material being blog, podcast, uh, book. Think carefully about this one. Well, I, <laughs> Well, I think I think the Saster podcast really can't be beat. Uh, oh, I, I knew on, you were my favorite. Guest. I have it on good authority. I, actually, I mean, we built our sales process and our marketing process by reading Saster.com and reading Jason Lemkin's answers on Quora. So I cannot recommend that highly enough. Um, I also think predictable revenue is very good. I think I read. I mean, I have read. You, have everything. you read that new book? I haven't read the new book yet. I have been meaning to. I'm sure it's wonderful. Oh, that is brilliant. Uh, I, I will send uh, it to you as a present for coming on the show. 
Oh, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm writing it down now. There we go. The hub, the other one I was going to mention is the HubSpot CRO just wrote a book that I read on vacation that was excellent. I think it's called The Sales Acceleration Formula. Okay. Uh, I really like that one. Very data-oriented. Fantastic. And then the biggest advice you'd give to early-stage SaaS founders, what would it be? Yeah, I would say stay in the game. I think as I look at, you know... Companies that started around the time we started, who's many of them going great and many of them, unfortunately, uh, no longer with us. I think most of the time people make a choice like this isn't working. I'm going to go back to my job or something like that. And I think you really can stick it out through just grit and put one foot in front of the other. So I'd say to anyone, you're doing great. You know, if they're not using the product, find out why and build. If they're not selling fast enough, figure out what's going on in your process and optimize. Um, but whatever you do, just stay in the game and put one foot in front of the other. Final question. What motivates you as the founder? The team that we've built. For sure, now it's coming to the office every day. You know, I came from a, a bigger corporate environment. I worked at Google. And you don't have nearly as much control over who you work with day to day. And having that wonderful kind of early stage startup team where everyone's pulling together, it's just wonderful. That's awesome. Uh, and then we're going to move out of the quick fire and into the kind of final quarter of the show today with the incredibly light topic um, of the rise of data analysts in our ecosystem. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, t- it's 10 in the evening for me. So this is perfect timing to talk about this. Uh, All right. That's, that's so, good. so why are companies suddenly seeing the need for these people? And, and what are the opportunities that they present? and companies perceive them to present? Well, I think at bottom, what happened in the last few years was uh, it was just Moore's Law, right? All of a sudden, it became cheap enough and feasible enough to store huge amounts of data and to process huge amounts of data basically in real time. And even five years ago, that wasn't the case. The amount of hard drives that you would need and the amount of processors and memory that you would need was prohibitive. But all of a sudden, it's no longer prohibitive. And then so you start moving up the stack. Now people are logging everything and storing everything because why not, right? And then you start to get sort of higher level uh, databases that offer this stuff for storage and processing like Amazon Redshift would be a classic example that happened in the last couple of years. And because it's possible now to store and process all of this data, you started to see people, probably you know, originally marketers or software engineers, kind of you know, get sucked into just answering these questions on a daily basis because you know, maybe the CEO would go, huh, what's happening to our conversion rate among this cohort of users? And someone would go, actually, we've been storing that information and I can answer that question. And then they give the CEO the answer. And the CEO gets addicted to this, this ability to get an answer all the time every day to the most detailed questions. And if you wake up one day and you have a whole team of data analysts kind of answering your question. How addicted to you are data? That's an interesting one. Oh, we're way on the, we're like way on the other side of the hill into the diminishing returns. <laughs> the joke about our culture here at Periscope Data is that, you know, there's no question you can't answer with five graphs. Uh, we're, we're always, you know, if not a hundred graphs. That's brilliant. Uh, but but every opportunity does bring its challenges. Uh, that's what my father always said about marriage. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Sounds, all right. Sounds. So, so how should companies look to organize them in the context of their company and how to manage these data analysts effectively? Yeah, so I think that's, that's a great question. It's something a lot of our customers struggle with. I, I think the key thing to do is to make sure that they are organized together and sitting together so that they're one sort of cohesive unit 
they develop a nice bond and a shared culture, a shared understanding of how we're going to organize this data and what it all means. The mistake that I sometimes see people make when they're over-optimizing is they're going to go, okay, sales is 10% of the data analysis requirements, so there's going to be one data analyst in the sales org, and then marketing is 30% of the needs, so they get three data analysts in the marketing org. I would not do that because you want data analysis to be um, a, a core function that functions well. And so you need, uh, you need them to sit together and be organized together and have sort of one leadership team. And then I would say probably the most successful model is to house them with their largest customer. Um, so we often see marketing. And so you'll see a CMO and reporting to the CMO is the head of data. And reporting to the head of data is a team of scientists and analysts who serve the wider organization, primarily marketing, but also the whole rest of the organization. I think that works pretty well. Well, Harry, it's been absolutely fantastic to have you on the show. I rarely enjoy an episode as much as I've enjoyed this episode. So thank you so much for making it so enjoyable for me and for describing the Periscope data journey. Some incredibly exciting times ahead. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Amazing founder and an amazing individual and a huge hand to Harry for giving up his time today to be on the show. As I said, such fun there and we so hope you enjoyed it. If you did and would like more from Sasta, then you can follow me on Snapchat at hdebbings with two Bs or you can follow Jason Lemkin on Twitter at JasonLK or even you can head to the home of Sasta on Sasta.com, that's S-A-A-S-T-R.com Likewise, if you haven't had the chance to check out Jason and Aaron Ross's new book, that is an absolute must and can be found in the show notes as always i'm so grateful for all your support and i look very forward to bringing you friday's episode with an immensely successful SaaS investor who's enjoyed no less than four incredible SaaS ipos so stay tuned